Precisely because every study ever done shows that if you take the same writing sample and attribute it to a male name versus a female name, it will be better perceived. And with the internet, you at least initially have the advantage of anonymity. There's this joke that, you know, somebody who's writing on the internet could be a 14-year-old or a dog. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm n- hopefully neither. Yeah. But uh, you know, you you can sort of muff things for a while if you want to. And there is a proud tradition of people writing under things that are more obvious um, pen names than the one I use. Well, I. I'm I'm uh, almost embarrassed to say this, but I I have to say it. You write like a man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I don't know if I should be thanked for that, but there it is. Anyway, uh, so in real life, aside from blogging, uh, what it, what is it that you do that that uh, brings you into this world? Well, I'm a bit of a hybrid. I've actually been involved in the financial services industry for I hate to say it, 30 years. I started out on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs. Uh, in corporate finance, which is the part of the business that's involved in helping large companies raise money. Um, then I went to McKinsey and worked in their financial institutions group, almost entirely, again, for big global financial firms. Then was recruited by one of my clients, Sumitomo Bank, to start up their U.S. mergers and acquisitions department in the days when Japan looked like it was taking over the world, and that mm-hmm. looked like an exciting thing to do. That quit making sense in 1989 for a whole bunch of reasons, and I've had my own consulting practice since then. And I've, you know, again, continued to work a lot with major financial institutions, as well as hedge funds and substantial private individuals. The financial institutions work has actually got me into some trading floor work. So I've ha- I've just wound up by where my assignments have taken me of getting my nose under the hood of a lot of different sort of sub-businesses in the financial services industry. And just to tick off Sarah Palin, you went to Harvard and Harvard Business School, right? That's correct. Uh, were you at Harvard Business School at the same time as George W. Bush? Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I know some people who know him from back then who claim that he was apparently much more intelligent then. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll leave that for, for another time. Okay. So um, you've been writing a lot in your blog and and uh, linking to other sources on the issue of the foreclosure situation. And anybody who's following this in the uh, national media uh, would think that uh, from the, what the banks have been saying to us about it, it's basically a matter of sloppy paperwork. Uh, your writing and the and the links that you point us to suggest uh, something r- rather different. So. What is the state of this situation right now, and what does the the this legal case Kemp versus Countrywide uh, tell us about it? You're you're correct in implying that the banks are trying to minimize this as an issue. The problem starts from the fact that mortgages are now sold to get them in the hands of investors. You know, a lot of people think of the old relationship where you'd go to the bank, you'd get the mortgage, the bank would keep the mortgage. That really isn't the way things work anymore for almost all borrowers. You know, you may still go to the bank to get your house loan, but now most, almost all loans are sold to investors, and the way that's done is they're bundled together, and they ultimately have to get into a little legal lockbox called a trust. It's like a little separate company. It's a very passive company. Once the mortgages go in there, it's really supposed to be the same set of mortgages. They really aren't supposed to trade them in and out or substitute them. And the contracts that create these things were very specific in terms of what the different people involved in setting up these deals had to do to get the little mortgages into the little lockbox. Now, what appears to have happened on a really widespread basis, and that case you mentioned, uh, Kemp versus Countrywide, gives a critical uh, bit of proof of it, is that 
for some reason, you know, and it's really hard to tell because the banks are very closed-mouthed, but you see the evidence of it coming up in foreclosure cases. We've seen a lot of evidence on the ground coming up with people fighting foreclosures. But there's a lot of evidence on the ground that has suggested that somewhere between, say, 2002 and 2005, the banks quit doing a lot of the things that their very own agreements said they had to do to get the mortgages properly into the legal lockbox called a trust. And the consequences are really serious because the agreements were also set up in such a way to make it virtually impossible to go fix it after the fact. Now, what this case you mentioned, Kemp versus Countrywide, this was just a, a, a you know one borrower fighting Countrywide. And in some of the court testimony, they got an executive from Countrywide, which is now owned by Bank of America, but Countrywide was the biggest subprime originator, an executive from um, Countrywide who'd been there 10 years.